1 Samuel 24, the first seven verses. It says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So the tension in this scene is it's like palpable, right? Verse 1 opens with Saul returning from his dealings with the Philistines. And, and really we start to sense a shift in, in the focus of the author of 1 Samuel as he doesn't even tell us how that interaction with the Philistines went. The Philistines have been this ever-present menace in 1 Samuel. And yet, as we enter this story, all we know is that Saul left to chase the Philistines. See that in Samuel, 1 Samuel 23, 28. And now he's returned to his real business. We don't know what happened in between. But his real business is chasing David, not the Philistines. This is what he cares about. And Saul comes out in full force. He takes his chosen men, it says, 3,000. And if you remember earlier on in the book, Saul can barely scrape together an entire army of 3,000 men. And now he has 3,000 chosen men who he's bringing out not to chase the Philistines with, but to chase David. And David's forces, we know from the previous chapter, are number 600 men, so Saul outnumbers him 5 to 1. The wilderness of Engedi, where they head to, it's just that. There's the spring of Engedi, which is this oasis in the middle of, of a wilderness area. And, and the place where they are, uh, you kind of get a sense of the ruggedness, the wild goats' rocks. So I don't know if you've ever like looked, been someplace where there are wild goats or wild sheep. The, their animals, right, sheep and goats, don't have a lot of natural defenses. They're not very fast, they're not very strong. So like their way to defend themselves is to live in places where nothing can get to them. They can see danger from a long way away, and then they it's amazing to watch wild goats. Like they'll run up sheer rock faces. <laughs> and you're like, how are they doing that? And that's that's the kind of place where David is hiding out. You you imagine like these these steep rock faces with like caves tucked into them, but then in the middle of this, Engedi is the place where there's this spring that, that comes up in the middle of it, and so there's some sheep pens around. It is here that David and his men are making their temporary dwelling. But then the unexpected happens, where Saul, who is hot on David's trail, needs to relieve himself. And this Hebrew euphemism here does not mean taking a nap. Uh, there are other euphemisms for bowel movements in the Old Testament, but this particular one, which is literally it's to cover his feet, 
it's only used in one other place. And this is pointed out by commentator R.F. Youngblood. And, and he says the following about it, and I thought this was interesting. The narrator may have chosen this particular euphemism for defecation because it occurs elsewhere only in Judges 3.24. So there are euphemisms for this action several times in the Old Testament, but this particular one is only used here and in Judges 3.24, where it's used of Eglon, king of Moab, who was alone in the upper room of his summer palace. This is one of my favorite stories in Judges. Uh, he gets killed by the judge Ehud. And here, Saul, the king of Israel, the, the, I think the writer is using the same phrase for what he's doing, his action here. If you remember, Ehud sneaks into Eglon's upper chamber and stabs him there. And, and Eglon is so fat that the knife disappears in the Eglon. This is why I love this story. It's just like, it's so gross. <laughs> it's fun to read with the kids. Uh, and Saul, Saul is in the same kind of situation that Eglon is. He's, he thinks he's going into a place where he can relieve himself, where he can be safe, where he has privacy. And instead, he's similarly unaware that he's placing himself in mortal danger. What Saul doesn't know is that in the recesses of this cave are 600 men, most of whom are chomping at the bit to kill him. He, he thinks he's gone into someplace private, and instead he's gone into the jaws of death itself. You can imagine these men, they're, they're saying to David, here is your opportunity from God. Kill him now. So that, that phrase there where they said, this is the moment of which God said to you, well, we don't have a record of God actually saying that to David. In fact, from the way this story progresses, I would say God probably didn't say that to David. But these men, they just look at it and they're like, here he is. Here's your chance. Let's go now. Imagine you're, you're with them. You're running scared first to Gath in the, with the Philistines, and then you're running down to Moab, and now you're running all over the wilderness of Judah. You're running for your life. You're on the razor, razor edge of hunger, and at least twice now you've been within a hair's breadth of Saul catching you to kill you. And now you're thinking, well, everything happens for a reason. Here he is. Here's the chance to kill him, David. David, you can be the hunter, not the hunted. In the latter half of verse 4, we find David sneaking down carefully. And I just, like, imagining this, it's been so hard for me to get my head around. How does David sneak down to Saul? Like, if you're in a cave, you ever been in a cave? Everything echoes and your rocks, like every little thing that moves would tip you off that this place is crawling with people. And yet David manages to get down there and cut off a corner of his robe. But... But if you're his men, and you see him crawl down, you're like, there he is, there he is, there he is. And he slices the rope. Slices abdomen, slices throat, slices heart, slices head, slices something. But his rope? What are you doing, David? What is this? And then if that's not enough, like when he gets back to his men, he's conscience-stricken about having done that much, about having cut the rope. He, he's... It, it's like cutting that robe was an act of violence and rebellion against the king himself, and, and David sees it as sin, and I think we ought to agree with him. The only other time we're told that David was conscience-stricken is 2 Samuel 24, where he, against God's will, orders a census of the people. It's the only other time we're told that David is conscience-stricken, that his heart is stricken. 
verse 6, we find David's reasoning for feeling this being struck to the heart. He says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David sees an, an incongruity, an incompatibility between trusting in God who anointed Saul and seeking to do Saul harm. And David's men, they don't see the same, <laughs> they don't see the same tension here that David sees. And we're told that David had to persuade them otherwise. But, but though persuade, uh, it captures the idea of what David's trying to do here. It's actually a pretty tame translation of the Hebrew phrase. Several commentators note that this phrase literally means to tear them apart. It's as if David has to verbally tear into his men to get across the idea that, that he is not supposed to be tearing into Saul with his sword. Saul is the Lord's anointed. For David to do violence to him would be to cease trusting God and to trust his own power and plan. Now, brothers and sisters, if we are to love our enemies, as Jesus commands us to do, it has to begin with this sort of rock-solid confidence in the plan of God in our lives and for our lives. Uh, a trust that God and his divine providence is not just working things out for our temporary relief. If that's all David's looking for, here's Saul right in front of him. He could kill him and like, thank you, God, got rid of my problem. But we should be looking for how God is working things out for our eternal good. David takes a long-term view here that is utterly necessary for us if we are to maintain obedience in any area, but especially when it comes to dealing with those who would use and abuse us. He knows that Saul is in the wrong. We're going to see that later on. David is clear about the fact that Saul is in the wrong. But that does not justify him wronging Saul, murdering Saul, in return. Do you believe that God is in control of your every situation? Do you believe that he is indeed just and will vindicate his children in the end? If you want to turn, I just want to read a few verses out of 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, Peter's speaking specifically to servants here. Beginning in verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ died 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Live in a way that trusts God like this. Second thing we're going to see is that loving our enemies means speaking the truth in love. Verses 8 through 15 of 1 Samuel 24. It says, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue it? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. It's interesting. That's one of the longest speeches we get from David in all of 1 and 2 Samuel, this, this rebuttal to Saul. Unless we take that first point that, that we talked about, that to love our enemies begins with trusting God, no matter what. Unless we take that and interpret it as an imperative to be doormats, I think what we see David do next here is he speaks. He speaks, as Paul says in Ephesians 4-5, he speaks the truth in love. I think we see three facets of his speech to Saul which are instructive for us. And the first is that he speaks the truth respectfully. And we think of 1 Peter 3, where, where Peter says, with all gentleness and respect, giving the reason for the hope that's within us. Here, David speaks the truth respectfully. Though Saul is out hunting for David's life, David calls out to him, My Lord the King. And in verse 11, he says, See, my father. There is no hint of bitterness in his words. Even as he calls into question the reasons for Saul's hunting and hatred of him, David is careful to paint things really in an inviting way, a way that invites Dave, or invites Saul to hear what he has to say. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks to do you harm? Now, does David actually think that, that Saul's out to kill him because somebody else told Saul, gave him some bad counsel, like David's trying to hurt you? I don't think so. In, instead, though, of being accusatory towards Saul, like saying, why is your heart so wicked and foolish and not making any sense? What's wrong with you, Saul? Instead, David is offering Saul the opportunity to distance himself from the wicked and foolish thoughts. So again, David is being respectful. Second, David speaks the truth frankly. 
he, he reasons clearly with Saul about the irrationality of his paranoia. Even though he doesn't say it in an accusatory way, he is clear. As stated above, he does so in a way that's respectful, but it's not squishy. In verse 10, he lets Saul in on the fact that when he was, that he was in the cave with him and everyone else wanted him to kill Saul, David said no. The, if, if Saul has any questions in his mind, like, really, you were in the cave? I didn't hear anybody in the cave. Well, David can lift up this corner of Saul's robe and say, here it is. This proof positive, I was there with you real close. And, and imagine you're Saul right there. You, you hear that, and then you look down at the corner of your robe and realize there is no corner of your robe anymore. It's gone. I mean, it's got to be a mixture of humiliation, shock, terror. His life was literally in David's hands. But David did not press that advantage. He did not kill the Lord's anointed. And so David can say in verse 11, There is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. You can't be much more clear than David is here with Saul. Third, David speaks the truth to Saul about God's judgment. This may not be the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of speaking the truth in love. Let's talk to people about God's judgment. And yet it's an important aspect of doing so. God's judgment is a real thing. And here we see the, the tail end of David's speech, verses 12 and 15, both reference God's judgment. David invokes the Lord as the ultimate judge of this situation, and the implication is clear. He's not going to side with Saul in this affair. David says, I can entrust this to the Lord because I know that I'm being righteous here and you are persecuting me. God will plead David's cause and deliver his life from Saul's hand. David is confident of this. And if that weren't clear enough, David, in the middle of this section, quotes an ancient proverb in verse 13 that says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness. So again, David's not hiding his meaning. He says, Evaluate your actions, Saul, and think about how God sees your actions. So loving our enemies begins with trusting God, but it also includes speaking the truth in love, respectfully, clearly, and honestly. But... But is love all just like my personal trust in God and then my words to the other person? I don't think so. I think we're also going to see action. Loving your enemies means doing good to them. Verses 16 to 22. It says, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, 
but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So finally, as this chapter concludes, we hear again from Saul. And he seems genuinely heartbroken over this situation. And we're conditioned by having read 1 Samuel to be pretty skeptical of Saul's tears and wonder if they're of a crocodilian nature. Uh, but, but nonetheless, he does seem to be moved by David's mercy to him and acknowledges that David has repaid him good as opposed to the evil that, that he's been dealing in David's direction. And, and not just that, but think about how public this is, how humiliating it would be. Before both armies, it would seem, these two men are crying out to one another. And Saul doesn't even have categories for the mercy that he's received from David. Verse 19, Saul said, For if a man finds his enemy, finds him like in a cave, literally exposed before him, would he let him get away safe? Of course not. Yet David has done just that. So Saul then turns and invokes a blessing upon David. May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And maybe he would have been better to say for what you did not do to me this day. You didn't kill me. But then I find Saul so interesting here. Because he's just like that manipulative person in your life. You give him an inch and he wants a whole mile. David spared his life. And now Saul starts asking for favors. Uh, he acknowledges in verse 20 that David will have the throne, although Jonathan told us in the previous chapter that Saul already knew David was going to have the throne. But now he says, now I know, now I know. And in verse 21, he wants David to swear by the Lord that he won't utterly destroy the house of Saul. And we know from chapter 20 in David's covenant with Jonathan, Saul's son, that David's essentially already agreed to this, but we need to realize like how big of an ask this is, like how much Saul is asking for. Yes, I know God's going to put you on the throne, but don't kill my family. It, it's, it's really out of line for Saul to be asking this. If one family dynasty is to replace another, of course the new king would destroy at least all of the males in the old family line. That's how you keep order in an authoritarian monarchy. That's how it works. And yet David, though he's been spitefully used and persecuted by Saul at every single turn, extends this kindness to him. He swears to Saul that he won't cut off his descendants or his name from Israel. Loving David's enemy started with trusting that God had a plan for every part of the situation. And it moved to him speaking the truth, but it came to its fulfillment. It terminated in actual action, in not cutting off his family. In fact, he would not only not take vengeance on Saul's family, but we find later that he's going to be extravagantly kind to members of Saul's family, far beyond what Saul could ever have legitimately asked for. I wonder if you struggle with this. Does the command to love your enemies seem unfair, impractical, or just plain strange? Like, this doesn't make sense. Why would we do this? Why would you be kind to those who are evil towards you? Friend, realize that the only basis you have for hope in this life or the next is because it is precisely this kind 
of unfair, impractical, and strange love that has been extended to you in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, verses 10 and 11, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What did Paul call us in that text? Enemies of God. Enemies of God. Well, that's a bitter pill for, for us to swallow in our prideful humanity. We don't want to think of ourselves like that. We want to think of ourselves as pretty good, basically. But we're not. We are by nature God's enemies of our sin and yet he sent his son to reconcile us to himself to create a relationship between us because of what he did on the cross where he not only passed over the opportunity to punish us but voluntarily took that punishment upon himself David's greater son has a mercy which extends even beyond that which David gave in that cave have you received that love his forgiveness of your rebellious and enemy status? If not, come to him. It's, it's absolutely free for everyone who believes. That, that not only has the king declared pardon, but reconciliation, status as a child of the king for all who come to the Father through faith in his Son. And if you've already received him, if he is your Savior, freely you have received freely give the father loved you when you were his enemy now you are free to love your enemies because of him let's pray Thank you. father god you are so merciful you are you are the father of mercies so many ways the, the scriptures describe you father and that one still stuns me. Father of mercies. The one from whom mercy proceeds forth. Would you help us to get our heads on straight when it comes to that? To see you that way. And to be shaped by that ourselves. That we would reflect you rightly to those around us. Thank you for, for who you are and for what you've done in giving us your son. Pray these things in his precious name.